Craig said we appreciate the social time, right? <laughs> Whenever we're invited to a wedding, I always go for the wedding cake. <laughs> That's where I go. Yeah? <laughs> other other reasons too. <laughs> my my son, when he was just a little guy, would always like to go with the weddings because he liked the wedding cake. Didn't like the weddings, but he liked the cake. Okay, let's uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, we pray that you might bless our time this, this uh, second session, that you might be honored through what we share. We want you to be honored. We want to see your character represented in Scripture. We claim that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so when we look at the next uh, the next principle of God's uh, character, and that is He's righteous. So let's look at these two in. Uh, the middle here, where it says he rules the world in righteousness, and in Psalm 98, 9, he will judge the world in righteousness. But I'd like you to turn with me, because you look at that passage and you say, well, what's this about? You know, he's not seemingly doing a very good job, right? It doesn't sound like the world's very much in righteousness. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah again. Interesting passage in the book of Zechariah because of the context that's there. Zechariah chapter 1 this time. Now, Zechariah is the prophet that came back at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, some of these people that came back from Babylon. They were released by the Persian leader. But in verse 8 of Zechariah 1, I saw at night, and behold, a man was sitting on a red horse, riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. And I said, My Lord, what are these? It's about within a generation. The Wycliffe, the dear Wycliffe people, have put a target date on that. Did you know that? They have put a target date on the accomplishment of this that every ethnic group using the present resources, much less that which is being developed in excess of what we have today, if it is used correctly, a correct amount of power, by the year 2025, at least, if not before, every ethnic group will be reached by the gospel. Now, that's rather contemporary, isn't it? You know, that's not the set of data. It's the saying, hey, it's getting close. I heard a missionary lady say this one time. You know, God allowed men to develop all these wonderful resources. They're all his and they're all ours, but he lets the rest of the world use them. <laughs> Isn't that neat? <laughs> so much for all these discoveries that people have that they're so great and brilliant and all that. <laughs> God uses the brilliance of man to accomplish his purpose. Amen. Okay. Notice that next phrase, worthy is the Lamb. To receive glory and praise. Okay, we want to go to this next one, which God is wonderful. So looking at that uh, Exodus passage, it says, Who is like you, Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory? Let's go back to the context of that in Exodus 15. Because it wasn't just, say, something that uh, Moses said kind of candidly one day or something that they said would be a nice thing to say. It was the time of the deliverance of the people of Israel at the Red Sea. 
And in verse 11 of chapter 15, which is the immediate aftermath of the deliverance of the people of Israel from the Egyptian hordes that were coming with the opening of the Red Sea and the total destruction of the Egyptian military might, greatest in the world at that time. And in verse 11, what Moses says is, Who is like unto the men gods? Who is like unto the majestic and holiness, awesome and praises, working wonders? Wouldn't that get your attention? Can you imagine being part of this group, numbering not just this small, piddly number, but if we look carefully at the scriptural record, it had to be anywhere from four to six million people. Because we are told in the book of Numbers that uh, there were 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 50, which was considered military age. In fact, about 603,000. So if there were 600,000 men, you can guess there were at least 600,000 women, right? That's 1 million two, 1 million 200,000. Now, these were prolific people. Remember, they had so many children. That's why the Egyptians were concerned. So let's be conservative and say that they were four children per family. That would make another 2,400,000. Add those groups together, and it's 3,600,000. And then to add the people above the age of 50, which wasn't a huge number because they were probably killed off in the slavery, but maybe at least 400,000 would make a number of at least 4 million. That's why the Egyptians were so concerned that they might uh, rebel. And can you imagine? You've seen pictures in your Sunday school manuals of the crossing of the Red Sea, haven't you? About three abreast. <clears throat> you know how long it would take? Several weeks to do it. They made it in one night, which meant there were hundreds abreast. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, think with me for a moment. The glory of God here. And you're walking through <laughs> a body of water in which there is a massive amount of water on either side. Deep enough that in a, a few hours it was to completely drown every, uh, every soldier, every military man and chariots in Pharaoh's army. And you walk through that thing, I think I would walk fast, wouldn't you? <laughs> right? And then when they got over... Then they saw the entire complex, military complex of the Egyptian military might rush in right after you, and all of a sudden the water comes back. Well, that's going to get your attention. See, God's purpose in all of this was not to just wonder his thing. He, he does that all the time, no problem. But to, to reinforce in their minds what he had done and how awesome and marvelous this was that the deliverance from Egypt was the event in their history in which the glory and the wonder of God was so manifest and then how he took care of them for 40 years in the wilderness. Okay. This, uh, I'm going to go on to the next line here. Now this is a prayer in Psalm 119 that we would be wise to pray when we read the Bible. Oh Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Help me that I don't do this casually, but rather I, I do it with anticipation. And then notice in Psalm 139, 14, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I made the comment the other night that the Hebrew text actually reads it slightly different. It's translated to make uh, grammatical sense, but 
In the Hebrew text, it reads, uh, I praise thee, fearful things. I am wonderful. It says it straight out in the text. I am wonderful. And that's marvelous, isn't it? Not only is God wonderful, you were made in his image, so he calls you wonderful. So don't ever let anybody uh, say to you, you're less than wonderful when God says you're wonderful. And you can say that without pride because whenever you agree with God, that's not pride. That's just agreement. So next time you look in the mirror, just go ahead and try that tomorrow morning when you get up. I am wonderful. <laughs> and if somebody heard you, they think you were really prideful. But you're not. You're just merely agreeing. You don't have to always say it to everybody. They, they don't understand. <laughs> right? Right? But if somebody comes up and tells you, you know, trying to flatter you, oh my, you're wonderful. You can say, well, I agree with that. It's in the Bible. I am wonderful. <laughs> I know I am. That'll, that'll really unnerve them. Okay. Let's go to the next uh, theme, blameless. First uh, Peter 2.22, uh, 2.22, regarding the Lord Jesus' life, he committed no sin, no deceit, or uh, un- untruthfulness was found in his mouth. But this passage, this next one, is rather interesting, is it not? In fact, uh, let's go to the passage itself in Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Because it says, uh, verse 25, With the kind thou dost show thyself kind. To the blameless thou shalt show thyself blameless. To the pure thou shalt show thyself pure. But notice the last part of verse 26. To the crooked thou dost show yourself twisted. The literal word is twisted. Because it simply means, yes, uh, Nancy. Astute, yeah. And it's a word that uh, we, we was translated in uh, because it was a difficult word to really come to grips with in translation. But the best synonym we can use there for the Hebrew word is twisted. In other words, he lets people look at something and they think it's twisted. You want to think that way? Here's the re- lack of restraint. Give them over to what they want to think. See, people that hate God and, and think in that direction are very convinced that they're right. And they become very adamant about their position. So he just lets them go with that. He gives them over to it. Now, the idea of giving them over to it isn't just to abandon them, but it's to help them to come to their logical conclusion, which is disaster, by which they might come back again. Okay. God is blameless. He is changeless. Another concept in uh, just a few passages here that relate to that Malachi 3.6, which says, Lord, he doesn't change. I, the Lord, don't change. He's always the same. You can count on that. That's important to note because sometimes people uh, are, are not like that, right? You know, sometimes people seem one way and then they, and then you know people throughout your life that, I didn't know they were like that kind of thing you say sometimes, you know, because they've covered over some things. But God is always up front. Therefore, therefore, he wants us to know his character. And in Second Timothy, it says he cannot deny himself. So therefore, when God says something in the scriptures, it has to be true. So let's look at another one where it says God is faithful. Now, the passage in Revelation 
pictures the Lord Jesus in triumph and victory, riding a white horse, a white horse. But it says the rider is called faithful. He is always faithful. And then the wonderful passage from Lamentations. Uh, in fact, let's look at that because it's got more there than was able to put up in the PowerPoint. Um, Lamentations 3, and beginning with verse 22, it says, The Lord's loving kindness never comes to an end. His compassions never fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's work in your life is new every morning. And God is faithful to you tomorrow as he's been today. Do you realize that tomorrow is not a created thing yet? Tomorrow has not been created yet. It's a brand new thing. <laughs> and so when you get up in the morning, you can be assured that his faithfulness never ceases and never ends. It's a brand new created thing for you for the, to enjoy. Okay. Uh, Let's go to Romans 3 on this passage because it's something that Paul talks about in his position about God where it says, beginning with verse 1, What advantage is the Jew and what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, they are entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he says, What if some were unfaithful? And some of them were. Does their faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? says, oh, no, no. Let God be true, though every man be false, because he's always faithful, even if people are not faithful. And then I want to look at this First John 1, 9. And uh, sometimes, I know it was true in, we're uh, often used in Lutheran liturgy, this uh, phrase, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You probably have heard that in church settings. And it's a true statement, but you might look carefully at the passage because you might ask this question, who is he faithful and just to? And the answer is to himself. He is faithful and just to himself, but if you meet the requirements of what he wants for you in your life, he will, without exception, forgive you. He will do it. Confess, by the way, means simply to agree with God about the way he is. And then another passage, if it wasn't time to get on, uh, where am I going with this? Anyway, it was the passage in Revelation 2.10 where the Lord said to the church at Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. This is a quality of God where he's trustworthy, all his precepts, all of his precepts. See, all of the word of God is trustworthy. You can bank on it. You can hang your hat on it. All your commandments are that way. Everything that God says that you can trust. Next, God is truth. All your words are true. We would assume that they are, but it definitely says it is. Uh, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Revelation 19.9 adds in the latter part of the Bible, these are the true words of God. We can trust what God is saying. And then God is impartial. It didn't quite get on. It's a passage from Second Chronicles 19.7 where it says, With the Lord our God there is no injustice, there is no partiality. 
Now, it's interesting that when God set up the system in, the, in Israel, there was a, a check and balance system. There was the priest that was to represent, who were to represent God to the people. The king was to be a godly man. He was to be a student of Scripture, according to Deuteronomy 17. He was to study the Scriptures for himself. And then prophets were raised up uh, to speak to people called from every walk of life, having the boldness to uh, challenge leadership if needed to be. But then there was a fourth group, and they were simply called the judges. And the concept of the judge within the concept of Israel was not just to weigh the evidence. That's what's done today in judicial systems, right? The evidence is weighed, and the, if the abundance of evidence is for this, then the decision is made in that way, you know what I'm saying? And then uh, when, a, when a case is dismissed, what, dismissed in court, what do they say? There was not enough evidence to convict the person. There's another term they use for that. What? Yeah, they were acquitted, but because the, the evidence wasn't substantial, it's another term that's used in the judicial system. But that's basically what it is. So it's which of the uh, positions between the accused and the accuser has the most evidence. Even circumstantial, right? Now, the judges... There you go. That's what I think. Beyond a reasonable doubt. And therefore, because in the system in America, a person was considered uh, innocent before he was guilty, then there had to be reasonable evidence. And if it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. Okay. Now, the judges in Israel were not to do it that way. They were to reflect the character of God and what he was saying because only God knew hearts. And they would pray for God to reveal to them what really was true. And therefore, that was always true justice. Because, you know, if there's a good defense attorney, he can beat a lot of systems, can't he? Just by this persuasive ability, the rhetoric. The judges were not to be like... So God uh, put his character into these judges if they were true judges. So that it was the evidence of what God wanted to bring forward that was true. Okay. Now, I'd like to go to the next one because we need a little bit of time with this. God is jealous. And it seems like a weird thing, but we need to look at some of the scriptures in regard to this. First of all, Exodus thirty-four fourteen, just simply states flat out, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, normally you don't think of his name being jealous, right? And jealousy is usually considered a negative thing, is it not? But you see, it's based on this. You belong to God, right? His mark of ownership is on your life. He doesn't want anybody flirting with that. Now, we understand, at least we used to, better than we do now, that commitment in marriage is exactly that. Right? No flirting. Let's supposing that you attend a marriage ceremony of some people you know them. No, soon. Soon you turned. And uh, when the pastor uh, in the ceremony says, do you... Uh, uh, you take this woman to be your wedded wife, love and to cherish until death do you part. And the guy would say, almost. <laughs> sort of. 
And the pastor with the service would say, what did you say? And he'd said, well, there's uh, Mary Jane and Esther, and uh, I spend three nights a week with each of those. But four nights I'm committed to my wife. What do you think would happen in that ceremony? Yeah. Hey, no Tom, Dick, and Harry, ladies, when you're committed to another husband. Right? (laughs) And that is a simple illustration in a very candid way of God's dealing with you. I want first place in your life. I don't want any flirting with other gods. I don't want anything to remove that thing that I placed on your life. So, I want you to look with me at one other passage. There's four up there. I want to look at the fourth one. That's from James 4. James 4, verse 5. And we need to look at verse 4 before we look at 5. James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses, boy, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And when he uses the word world, and that's commonly used, especially in the New Testament, it doesn't mean the natural, beautiful world with sunrise and sunset and flowers and birds and all these beautiful things. It means a system that is uh, contrary to the will of God. It's an organized system that stands against God. Therefore, like in 1 John 2, it says, Love not the world, neither the things in the world. For that which is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. The system is anti-God. See, the system that we live in today is not non-Christian, it's anti-Christian. And whenever it has opportunity, it will express itself in that way when the restraint is not there. Okay? So, he, uh, looking at the passage again, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility toward God? Therefore, who wishes to be a friend of the system makes himself an enemy of God. Or, verse 5, do you think that the Scripture speaks of no purpose when it says, he jealously desires the Spirit which he's made to dwell in you? If you're truly a Christian, I say truly because we need to emphasize that, you have right now the Holy Spirit dwelling in your life. That's true in Scripture. So every Christian has that. Now, there are Christians that aren't very obedient to God, but they're still Christians, which means the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit might be grieved in in the person's life because of some of their behavior, but they're still Christians as long as they have that relationship with God. The people who are not Christians have no relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's not there. They can free to do what they want. It says in Romans 6, when Paul talks about that, he said, when you were free from righteousness and and free to do your own thing, what's, what's the result of that which came into your life? You were free from God. But the end was destruction. The end is disaster. But now that you have become committed to God, it's a different story, you see. So therefore, he jealously longs for that spirit to be nourished within you. And therefore, 
he realizes your uh, dilemma. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Paul expressed this with great detail in that chapter. And through a whole chapter, but I want to look at the last verses beginning with verse 21. He said, I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There it is. When I want to do right, there's always a vulnerability to do the wrong thing. That's life. I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost being. But I find another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which also is there. And then he says this in frustration. Oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from this body of death? But notice he answers his question. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows your heart. In fact, there's a, there are verses in Scripture where he says, he remembers that you're dust, <laughs> which remembers your frailty. And he doesn't expect perfection, by the way, but he does expect commitment. There's a big difference, you see, between the two. Just like in a good marriage, you don't expect perfection from your spouse, but you do expect commitment, Right? Right? Yeah, all the time. Okay. Now, one other, and then we'll wind it up tonight. God is just. All his ways are just, upright, and just is he. He's a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And then this interesting passage in Acts 17.31, where it says, He has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness or with justice. That was part of the message that Paul preached to the philosophical uh, pagans in Athens, Greece. That day he stood there. And then the wonderful passage in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. So may it be so in our lives as we seek to walk in his ways, Fulfill our destiny and make him Lord of our lives. It's really not difficult. We just need to do the right things and have the right commitment. We make it difficult. So we'll wind this up next week, one more time, with other aspects of the character of God that I trust will be helpful to you. Hey, would you come and close, please, uh, Craig?